Hi, my name is Mark Riggins, and I'm pastor here at LifePoint, located in Plano, Texas, and we meet here every Sunday at 1030, and we are here for your family. I hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you all. And um, as Isaac said, we're kicking off a brand new series going through the book of Ruth. I'm so excited about that. But before we dive into this incredible book, in fact, if you want to follow along, you can grab your Bible. We're going to turn uh, in just a minute to that book. I think it's like around page 210 in your pew Bible, the book of Ruth's early in the Old Testament, and is a dynamic book. I can't wait for us to dive in. But first, I wanted to give a quick update because last Sunday night, we had a, an important meeting. Now, if you're new, I just got to tell you that we're launching a second campus on Easter Sunday this year, April the 9th. And what that means is we've opened up a whole lot of new volunteer roles. And so last Sunday night, we had a meeting inviting people who might be interested in serving in those volunteer roles. And so on the way to church last Sunday night, my wife Ginger said, well, how many people do you think will come tonight? And I said, honestly, if at least 40 people come, I'm going to be encouraged because we need folks to like step up. And, and I'm excited as we finish this series to say uh, last week that your faith is going to grow when you serve. And I was excited to see how many people would step into that. And last Sunday night, I just got to tell you, we had 127 people show up to serve in these new roles. Isn't that great? So... This is in addition to the people who already serve here. These are people who are new that are saying, I'm going to serve and I'm going to make this happen. I am called to do this new thing. People who are going on mission saying, I'm going to be part. And you know why I'm excited? Because your faith is going to grow. And I believe the kingdom is going to grow as we go to a new area where we want to share Jesus and build believers. I am so grateful. And i got to tell you about one couple in particular. In fact, um, <clears throat> I'm just going to tell you in advance, this couple, they're amazing. Some of you know them, some of you don't. I'm, in telling this story, I am going to be asking for forgiveness, not permission, okay? So I'm just telling you in advance. Um, this couple is Tim and Janie Cup. Where are Tim and Janie? Anybody see where they are in the room? Because I am totally, again, asking for, where are they? They're in the very back. Yes, good. And they're serving today as greeters in the back. So here's the thing with Tim and Janie. Again, they don't know I'm doing this, but they're still staying in the room, so that's encouraging. Back in 1989, PG, PG, if you'll raise your hand, our founding pastor, who's an amazing man of God, and a small group of people decided to start this church. They came to this area because it was an area growing with young families, and they thought, you know what, let's give this a go. And what they did strategically was they, did, they cold called homes in the area, inviting them to church. And Tim and Janie got one of those calls as they were new to the area. And the caller said, would you guys come to our new church? We're going to be having our first service in a few weeks. And Tim and Janie said, sure. And then the caller said, and would you bring, help bring cookies for all the guests? <laughs> and Tim and Janie said, Sure. And then they came, but they came a week early. They got the dates wrong, Tim said. So technically, they are the first ones to ever attend a service at LifePoint Church, right? And here's why I tell that story. Last Sunday night, Tim and Janie were there because they're ready to go to Rock Hill 34 years later and start another campus at LifePoint Church. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that so great? 
And I didn't tell him I was gonna say this, I just told him in advance when I saw him this morning, I said, I'm just gonna tell you now, I'm gonna be asking for your forgiveness and not your permission. And I said, but I'm so grateful you're going to Rock Hill. And he goes, I guess you want us to bring cookies. And I said, yeah, if you don't mind, we could use that. Uh, so if you get any cookies on that day we launch, they're from Tim and Janie because, uh, well, we just gotta keep that tradition alive. Here's the point. I am so grateful to be part of a church of people who realize there are a lot of things that you could do with your life that are more profitable, maybe even more popular, but you've decided to give your life to the thing that is more eternally significant, and that is building the church of Jesus Christ. And I'm so grateful to be on mission with you. So I want to give a couple of updates about our second service. Now, we're we're going to launch this on Easter Sunday, and if you haven't bothered to look at the calendar, Easter Sunday this year is April the 9th. That's when we'll launch the new campus. And what we're going to do the Sunday before, though, April the 2nd, the first Sunday in April, is we're going to move to our new two-service schedule on April the 2nd. And the reason is it allows us to preview and to prepare for the launch on Easter and so the new two-service schedule is, starting April the 2nd, we will go to the 9 o'clock service here in Plano and the 10.30 service at Rock Hill. Now the beauty of this is, because there's so much to set up and tear down with Rock Hill, it takes more time, it gives us the opportunity um, to do that. So that new schedule begins in April. Now, here's another announcement that's really important. The following Sunday, there's just one exception to this schedule in April. And that is the following Sunday. On Easter Sunday, we are going to have one combined service at Rock Hill at 1030. And here's why. Because when the baby is born, the whole family shows up. And we want everybody to be there and celebrate Easter together and let's launch a campus together, right? And then the following Sunday, April the 2nd, 16th, we'll return to our two-service schedule. Now... I wanted to also tell you that last Sunday it was so cool that after our volunteer meeting, one lady came up to me, Debbie, she came up to me and she said, hey, listen, Mark, I know there are a lot of areas of, of, of opportunity to serve and, and, and she said, my husband Rick and I, we've, we've helped you know, start several churches throughout our years and we're excited about this new journey. We, we just feel called to it and I just want to ask, you know, where can we help the most? And then she said, would it be okay, because I know Rick was telling me that in the early days, the first few weeks, especially that first summer, it's critical in a new church. That first summer is really critical. She said, would it be okay if, to get, get us through those first few weeks and through that first summer if we just maybe attended both or if we attended one and served the other? I said, yes, that would be, that would be acceptable. That would absolutely be okay. I'm so grateful just to hear the heart of so many of you. And there were several great questions that were asked over the last few weeks since we made this announcement. So I just want you to know that we're keeping this updated with new questions that are repeated. You can get the FAQ at the web address and right on the homepage there is a link for uh, the FAQ. So that's always being updated as more questions, some of your great questions are being asked. So we want to keep that communication going. Bottom line, it's an exciting year ahead. Now, let's get started with our new series, the book of Ruth. Now, as we begin this series, one of the things that's really disruptive, and I know you've probably had this experience, you ever have the experience where you're driving down the road, you get your screen up, you know, your map on your, on, your, on your car or maybe on your phone, and all of a sudden you miss the exit or the exit's closed. 
and all of a sudden you see this screen? How many of you are, I, I, I call myself directionally challenged. Any of you directionally challenged people in the room? Yeah. By the way, one of my pieces of marital advice I always give, because my wife is a found and I'm a lost. I'm not talking spiritually, I'm talking with directions. I, my marital advice always is, two lost should not marry each other. It's just kind of a rule, right? God seems to put a found and a lost together, usually in every couple, right? I see this, my point is, I see this screen a lot, because I'm just going, I'm thinking, or I'm talking, or I'm listening to the radio, and all of a sudden, I'm way past where I was supposed to do, what I, you know, some kind of turn. So when that happens, this always feels kind of disruptive, doesn't it? Like, I thought I was headed this way, and something is causing me to now go a new way. The ETA now is a little longer. It's frustrating, right? That doesn't compare to when this happens in life, doesn't it? When you're headed a direction, and all of a sudden, your life gives you a curveball, and now you're headed in a completely new direction you never thought you would be headed. It, this is the feeling that we have when maybe you wanted to go to that college of your dreams, and instead you get a denial letter, and you're rerouted. Or maybe you were expecting the promotion, and instead you got a pink slip, and you're rerouted. You were anticipating happily ever after, but instead you got a divorce, and you're rerouted. Or maybe for you it was that you thought that you would be successful in rehab, but you had a relapse. Or maybe you thought this was another year of celebrating a wedding anniversary and instead you're wearing a new label of widow. And you just feel rerouted. And life is disruptive for us all. And the question is, what do we do? Some of us, Sometimes think following Jesus makes life easier and makes life easy. But whether you follow Jesus or not, we all get rerouted. And we find ourselves going down a road we didn't think we would ever go down. And maybe a road we never wanted to go down. And that's what we're going to talk about. That's the beauty of the book of Ruth. It's a grand story of some ladies who get rerouted. And what they have to teach us is so relevant, even though it's a more than 3,000-year-old ancient story, it couldn't be more relevant to our lives today. Now, if you're new, in every series, we like to have a Bible memory verse. And the reason is because we believe when you put the Word of God to memory, it gives wisdom to your life. And so as we have a new series, we have a new memory verse. And I, here's the way I invite you to memorize the verse. Just keep coming. We're going to go over it every week. And by the end of the series, you'll have it put to memory by simply being here. Here's the verse. It's Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. And I believe this verse captures the essence, the principle that we're going to teach throughout this series and learn from the book of Ruth. I'm going to say it once and I'm going to ask you to say it out loud with me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways submit to him. And he will make your paths straight. You may feel rerouted, but there is a purpose and a straightness to his design. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Would you say that out loud with me? Say that with me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. 
So today we begin a new series that we're simply calling Rerouting, the story of Ruth. What do you do to trust God with unexpected turns? Now, if you don't know much about the book of Ruth, there are four chapters, so here's what we're gonna do. Each week, we'll go through one chapter. And basically, the story of Ruth is a lot like a Disney movie in that it starts off with a tragedy and eventually we get to the happily ever after. Some people have even said the story of Ruth is like a horror movie that turns into a Hallmark movie. I prefer the Disney example, but whatever one you like to go with, the point is it starts off with tragedy in chapter one as all the men die and the women must move forward. And can I be honest with you, the temptation, especially on Super Bowl Sunday when we're planning parties and we just want to have fun and eat the sweets that are out in the lobby, I'd prefer skipping this and just sort of summarizing it in a couple of minutes and get to chapter two with the fun stuff and the happy stuff. But we must talk about chapter one and the tragedy and the grief and the loss. In the same way, in your life, when you face grief and tragedy, isn't it tempting to fast forward and to ignore and to somehow get next to the next season of life or the good stuff? And we can't fast forward or ignore our grief. We must deal with what is in front of us. And some would even say this is a divine space where God seems to be so near and we don't wanna miss it. So with all that said, we're gonna begin with this question. What happens? When unexpected loss, which is what we'll deal with in chapter one, it leads to another challenge. It leads to loneliness. And some of you are there today. You've not only experienced some level of loss in your life, but it is leading or has led to a sense of loneliness. And this is deep and this is hard and this is overwhelming, isn't it? I mean, there are a lot of reasons that we can feel lonely. Sometimes we feel lonely because someone has no longer in our life. Maybe there's a divorce or maybe there's been a death and they're just no longer part of our life. I remember when my dad passed away about nine years ago and, and if I'm honest with you, my attempt was, uh, we were living in Southern California and my dad wasn't there and, and you know, you're kind of grieving from across country as he lived here in Texas. And I remember just thinking, well, I'm just going to go to work today, and I'm going to keep doing what I normally do. And it, honestly, I, I just kind of didn't want to have to think about it, right? I just wanted to go to work. And I will never forget my pastor calling and saying, you know what, Mark, would you just stay home today? And so I wasn't happy about that necessarily just because I didn't want to deal with it, but I did. And then he said, and I would like to come by in a couple of hours. And I really didn't want that, Right? <laughs> I don't know, I just, you know, because I knew, you know, pastor's coming by and I'm grieving. He's going to want to talk about it, you know, and I don't want to talk about it. I just kind of want to move on, right? I remember sitting in the couch and thinking I didn't know that I had that much water in me as I would just begin to cry and, and remember my dad. And then my pastor Jack came over and I'll never forget when he knocked on the door, <clears throat> excuse me, he came in and, you know, I don't remember a thing he said. I just remember that he came over and sat. He sat at the dining room table and we just sat together. And that meant so much to me. And today, if my dad were still alive, it would be his 80th birthday. And yeah, I know some of you have experienced the kind of loss that just, you've lost a spouse, some of you have lost a child. 
and the loss is real, isn't it? Sometimes loss is not just because someone dies. Sometimes loss is because there's a lack of understanding. It doesn't feel like anybody understands what you're going through. And you feel like you try to explain it to somebody and they don't seem to fully appreciate it. You ever been there where you, you try to explain it? And it's like, no, you don't get it. It hurts more than you seem to appreciate. You know that feeling? And then there's another category, and there's a lack of justification. Sometimes there's loss that we don't feel like we should be, we don't feel justified in feeling the pain. You ever been there where you feel like, well, compared to them, I haven't really suffered, and so I shouldn't be feeling, I don't feel like I have the right to grieve. I don't feel like I have the right to have the loss. I mean, for crying out loud, over the last week, we look over in the globe of Turkey and Syria, and last I saw there over 28,000 people lives have been lost I can't even fathom the amount of families the amount of generations that have been lost and I think man I'm really blessed what am I you know like I don't have the right because there's something in all of us we like to rank pain (laughs) and we think well compared to that I don't have the right to suffer I was just talking to my counselor not long ago about this and one of the wisdoms she gave me she goes you know Mark the reality is when we compare suffering we delay healing suffering. You see, the truth is, you may not have the suffering I have, I may not have the suffering you have, but we both still have pain. You know, if I have my arm cut off and you only have a finger cut off, you still hurt. It may be the worst pain you've ever experienced and it needs to heal. I say all that for this reason. As we look today at the story of Ruth and these three women, you might be tempted to think, oh, your suffering, your pain, your hurt doesn't compare. And you don't have the right to hurt. And I want to encourage you that comparing suffering delays healing of suffering. That whatever pain you have is real. Whatever pain you have still needs to be healed. And what they're going to teach us is how to do that. So with all that said, the story of Ruth begins with loss. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Oh, this is such a powerful story. Look how it begins. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now that might feel like a throwaway line, or I don't know exactly who these people are, or what they're talking about with the judges ruled, but it's so important. Because throughout the Bible, there are eras of Scripture. And when we understand the eras of Scripture, we can put things into better context. And what this is telling us right out of the gate, the book of Ruth, oh, this was in the era of the judges. And that means something. And if you don't know what that means, well, I'm going to tell you real quick what it means. In fact, there's one verse right before the book of Ruth, which is called the book of Judges, And at the very end, it reminds us what the era of the judges was like. And watch this in Judges chapter 21, verse 25. It says, in those days, these are the era of the judges, when there was no king. We're pre-king era, kingdom era. If you go, I don't know what that is, that's fine. But here's the judges. Here's what it means. Everyone did as they saw fit. So here's the way you can think of the era of the judges. It's like the wild, wild west. Like everything goes, there's not a lot of municipalities there's not a lot of organization it's the era of the judges and this is important to know in the book of Ruth as we continue to work through this story because when you look at the period of the judges there are some specifics that I would just like to point out number one there was no organized government 
Think about it. God chose a man named Abraham to form a nation, Israel, through whom he would eventually send the Messiah, Jesus. The whole Testament is the development of that nation, Israel. The nation of Israel, in its birth early days, was taken captivity in Egypt. For 400 years they were slaves. And when they are finally freed, Moses is led by God to lead them out of Israel. And God shows off and says, now you will see what I will do. And he frees them from Israel. When they get back to Palestine, Canaan, the promised land in Israel, all the same place. Guess what? They have no education. They have no experience. Suddenly they are in charge of running a nation. And so for the next three or four hundred years, it's honestly like the wild, wild west. And what they said was, you're in charge. You're the judge. No organized government. And when we think of the judges, don't think Judge Judy. This is like political military leaders who are the boss and whatever they say goes. Men, sometimes women, were the judges. They were the ultimate authority. And you went to them, any kind of conflict, any kind of big decision, they made the call. And finally... The saddest part of all is it was a very dark era in Israel's history because spiritually they kept going further and further from God. They would get a new judge, they would pull back and they would get further and further from God and they'd come new judge. Call back. It was just like this cycle over and over again in Israel's history and in this darkness. This is probably 1400 BC to 1100 BC. The next era is gonna be the kingdom judges. That's where we get like Saul, David and Solomon. But in this era of the judges, it's a dark season and there is light that comes through in the story of Ruth. This beautiful story in this dark era. And so when the story begins, hey, it's back when there was an era of judges. That's really important. In the days when the judges ruled, it really gives context for this entire story. So with that said, let's continue on in the story. The rest of the verse one, it says, here we go, the book of the story of Ruth. There was a man from Bethlehem. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? We know another man from Bethlehem that we normally celebrate in Christmas, right? There's going to be parallels throughout the scripture, the story of Ruth. In Judah, that's the region in southern Israel, together with his wife and two sons, he went to live for a while in the country of Moab. We'll talk about why that matters in a minute. This man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem there in Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now watch why this is so important. Here's a quick map if you just wanted to get context. If you're looking at, this is Judah, the region of Judah, and here's the nation of Moab. Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem in this area. From here where they would have lived, Elimelech, Naomi and their two sons, to go down to Moab was about 50 miles, seven to 10 days journey because these are mountainous area in modern day Jordan. They make this trek. This is important. These are long-term enemies, these two nations. You say, well, so they don't like each other. I mean, everybody don't like. Here's how much they don't like each other. Here's a verse that summarizes. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse three. If you wonder how long, how, how big these enemies are, look at this verse. No Ammonites, a nation just north of Moab, or a Moabite, the nation of Moab, or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Not even in the, say it with me, 10th generation. This is like saying, not only can you not come to my birthday party, 
your descendants for 10 generations can't come to any of my future family birthday parties. That's like a real enemy. They are serious, long-term enemies. And here's why I point that out, because as we go through the story of Ruth, this conflict will continue to matter. This battle, this relationship between these two nations, Israel and Moab. There's so much animosity here. Now, we look at verse 3 as we continue the story. Now, they're headed to, uh, to, to Moab, and now Elimelech, here's where the tragedy begins. Naomi's husband died, and she was left with her two sons, and they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there in Moab for about 10 years, both Malon and Killian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Can you imagine what loss? And you may be tempted to compare. We've already kind of talked about that. But we can recognize the deep, deep loss that Naomi and the daughter-in-laws are feeling. And in this era, it's so important that it's a patriarchal, male-dominated culture back 3,000 years ago in antiquity, that to be without the protection and the provision of a man would be destitution and it would be dangerous. They would likely end up in poverty. But the Bible refuses to let that be the story as the Bible instead elevates the strength and character of these women. But they are facing a difficult season ahead. And here's what they're going to show us. They are going to show us how to grieve. They are going to show us how to grieve. So after they lose their husbands, all of them, Naomi, not only her husband, but her sons, they head back to Bethlehem. So they make this trek back to Bethlehem. They decide, obviously it's back for Naomi, but the two daughter-in-laws are going along with her. Again, this is probably a seven to t- 10 day journey and along the way it dawns on Naomi wait a minute you guys don't need to go with me to Israel I don't have any more sons to you know offer you as husbands why don't you just go back to Moab after all the people of Israel hate people from Moab you would probably live your life better if you stayed in your own home country I don't want you to be in a place where you are going to be despised so why don't you go on back home but let's be honest Naomi's grieving And I don't doubt that she just wants to be alone. She doesn't want to have to keep them company. She doesn't want to provide for them. It's going to be difficult enough to provide for herself. She's had so much deep loss and she's kind of done. She just wants to be isolated. Isn't that where we often go when we're grieving and when we're down? And maybe you struggle with depression or some kind of anxiety or some kind of sadness. And, And there's a temptation in all of us in those seasons to isolate. And Naomi says, why don't you ladies just go on back and let me be as I head back to Bethlehem. We know how she felt because in verse 12, we see an important context for what was going on emotionally for Naomi. Look at what it says. Even if I thought there was still hope for me. Basically, she's saying, you still need to go back. In other words, Naomi, she's become hopeless. And it's understandable with the pain that she's going through. 
And maybe some of you are here today and that's, you're on the border of that or maybe you're already there because of the loss that you've had. You too can identify with that sense of hopelessness, that darkness, that heaviness, that weightiness. And you can relate to Naomi's, even if I thought there was no hope. Can I just encourage you? The temptation is, especially in our American culture, is to go around your grief, to shortcut your grief, or to fast forward to the next season of life, but we must go through it, not around it. I love what Richard Rohr says. He says, grief is not a process that can be rushed, but must be allowed to happen over time and in its own time. You see, as churches sometimes, sadly, we aren't good at helping people with their grief. Sometimes as churches, we mean well, but we want to rush you to hope and skip the grief. The truth is, most of you, if you were raised in church, you probably were taught how to read the Bible and how to pray, but you probably never learned how to grieve. I love this quote by Walter Ruggerman. He says, the church is to tell the truth in a society that lives in illusion." But we grieve in a society that practices denial. And we express hope in a society that lives in despair. We recognize, yes, we are messengers of hope, but we don't deny real pain. Well, Naomi, Orpah, Ruth, they're in real pain. And they're headed back to Bethlehem. Naomi tells them to go back, and Orpah does. She goes back to Moab. But Ruth begins to argue with her mother-in-law. And she has this famous quote in that argument. It's in verse 16 and 17. But Ruth replied, talking to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you. Don't urge me to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. It's pretty intense, isn't it? By the way, single men, single ladies, this is not a pickup line. Too intense, all right? Too intense. But Ruth knows something about Naomi that Naomi doesn't even fully appreciate. Because Ruth never promises that she'll bring insight, wisdom, or words. Ruth promises, I will always bring my presence. I will just be with you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people, and even death won't separate us. I will be with you. Your presence and my presence will be one from here on out. Wow, what a promise. I don't know about you, but sometimes when people are hurting, isn't it easy to kind of get weirded out by that because you think, I don't really know what to say. Their loss seems so hard, and sometimes because we don't know what to say, we avoid them altogether. And Ruth is reminding us They don't need your words and my words. They just need your presence. In fact, sometimes the greater the tragedy, the fewer the words. Ruth just demonstrates it's the presence that is the gift. And in suffering, we all need a Ruth 
who will come alongside us. I love what Henry Nouwen says about a true friend in grief. He says, the friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief or bereavement, I love this, who can tolerate not knowing. They're not trying to explain. Not curing. Not healing. Oh, now that is a friend who cares. And that is what Ruth is doing for Naomi. But it's costing Ruth something to do this. Think about the sacrifice of Ruth in this moment. What she's essentially saying to Naomi is, in my grief, I commit to you in your grief, and I am willing to go back to your home where I am being rejected and not welcomed up to the 10th generation because I know the value of presence in grief. What a sacrifice. The ultimate gift to a grieving person. So they go back, and they go back to Israel. They go back to Bethlehem. And now we fast forward to the end of chapter 1. And I want you to see the powerful effect of pain, of grief, of loss that some of you are probably carrying here today. Verse 19 it says, So the two women, now we're down to Naomi and Ruth, they went on until they came to Bethlehem. So they're back with that journey from Moab. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? She looks different. Her family's different. And her grief made her unrecognizable. She had changed. And she responds and says, don't even call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me, I am bitter. She is going from a grieving mom and wife with the weight of it beginning to change her as it often does. And now she's beginning to see her heart harden a little bit. And this is what loss can do. This is the power of the disfiguration of weighty grief that's carried, especially when it's carried alone. And this story is gonna end beautifully, but in this season, let's be honest, some of us can relate to Naomi right here. Are you carrying that kind of grief or loss or pain? Are you beginning to see it change you? And this brings us back to our opening question. What happens when unexpected loss leads to loneliness? And as the series continues, we're going to keep following the story of Naomi and Ruth, and eventually we're going to learn a lot of principles that apply to our life today. But today, I just want to leave you with this. The truth is, when you are hurting, when you are grieving, when you are experiencing loss, whatever you do, these two things matter. Don't rush, and don't go alone. Make sure that you go slow, and you go with someone, and you don't carry the weight alone. And if you're here today... That's my greatest heart and desire for you is that you not carry it alone. Last week, if you were here, we talked as we ended the series about Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He talked about whatever you do. It's one thing to hear truth, but it's more important to put it into practice. So let's put this into practice. If you're here and you're hurting, we want to offer some things because I know in a room with this many people, there are people who are hurting, who carry things others in this room don't know anything about. And let me give you just some practical things that might might resonate with you. 
Number one, this Saturday, we begin a brand new series of Grief Share. This is for people who have lost someone several weeks long, no charge, from 10 to 11.30 every Saturday, Grief Share. If you are interested in this important program, where you can sit around a circle with other people that would go, yeah, that's how I feel too. That's what I'm wondering about too. That's the pain I have too. And you don't have to be alone. Go out to our Welcome Center afterwards. There's some brochures where you can pick up and get the details. This Saturday it kicks off. You're invited to that. Secondly, I want to invite you to not walk alone. To instead invite somebody to walk with you. Somebody needs to be Ruth in your life. And if you aren't hurting and, and, and you're grateful for that, you may need to be someone's Ruth. And I just want you to know we have a ministry here at LifePoint, Stephen's Ministry, where people who are trained volunteers walk one-on-one with other people who are hurting and going through loss and pain. And if you're interested in learning more about that, again, no charge, but it's available to you, They're behind that curtain, behind the tech booth after the service today. Some of those people, some of those Stevens ministers are going to be back there. You can just walk back there and say, hey, tell me more. I want to know about this and consider whether or not that's something I want to take advantage of because I'm going through a season right now and I don't want to do it alone. And we want to walk with you. Finally, just a real practical step for all of us is just to keep rereading Psalms, in particular Psalm 34, which I find comforting when you're going through a season of loss. Well, as we end our service today, I want us to end it a little differently. If you have grief, what I want to do is I just want to pray for you. And if you know of someone who has grief or pain or loss in their life, I want to pray for them. And most of us know someone. So in a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand if that's you, because we don't want you to carry this alone. Now, if you're new and you're not a person of prayer, I'd be willing to pray for you. You don't have to have a prayer. I'm going to pray for you. So here's what I want to do. I want to ask everybody in the room, would you just close your eyes for a moment and let us have a moment of privacy for those in the room who are hurting. And with your eyes closed, if you have pain, loss, or grief, or you know someone who does, I want to pray for you right now. Would you stand in the room so that I can pray for you. Yeah, yeah, who else? There we go. Just stand, if that's you, just stand and let us pray for you today. There's many of you. Church, if you would just take a minute and look up and see if there's someone standing near you, and if there is, would you do me a favor? And would you go to them and stand with them so that they don't stand alone? Let's make sure in this place today, no one stands alone. Would you just take a minute right now and go stand with someone who's standing so that they have the support of someone? You don't have to know what to say. You're just offering presence today. You're someone who's simply going to say, I'm going to stand with you today. I don't have to know the answer. I don't have to know your situation, but I'm with you today. And in a minute, I'm going to pray for you. But here's what I'm going to do. For those of you who are standing with a hurting person, I'm going to invite you to pray for them. You may not know what to pray, and that's totally okay. Again, there's nothing about a profoundness in our words. But I'm going to put up on the screen just a real simple prayer. And you may just want to offer that prayer, standing with them. 
You may want to pray a prayer of your own. And then in the silence, you can just continue to stand with them and give them the gift of your presence. So as Ryan sings, would you guys pray for those who are hurting in this room? I just want to echo those prayers that are going on in the room right now. I want to pray for everyone who's standing, some who maybe aren't standing, but you're hurting and you're here today. Dear God, you see us and you know the things that are really going on in our life and you know the pain that's within and you know the suffering that's been experienced. And Lord, we come to you because you have a special heart for the hurting. You tell us that you are particularly near those who are hurting those who are suffering and those who are broken and crushed in spirit. God, we just, we welcome you and we ask for your healing. We ask for your comfort. We're so grateful, Emmanuel, that you are with us. Lord, I just pray for those who are in the room that are hurting today, that in the days ahead, in a very real way, we would not only anchor the truth of your presence but we would even feel the tangible sense of your presence that we would embrace the peace that only you can provide especially in the season of darkness and that you have a miraculous way of in your time bringing light into darkness and in the meantime we hold on to the pain with an open hand and we invite you in to walk with us May you, Father, give healing as only you can to everyone in this room, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you all just stand with me, all of those of you who are in the room? As the chapter wraps up, I just want to give this one last verse. In Ruth chapter 1, it says, And then when they finally returned from Moab to Bethlehem with the daughter-in-law Ruth, the barley harvest was beginning. And there's a little tease to what's coming. Hope is around the corner. So you got to come back next week. There's hope. We're going to have fun. We're going to enjoy the story as it develops. Hope is around the corner. And today as we sing and as we close together, I want to encourage you. You might be singing and you are encouraged. Or today you might be singing and your singing encourages someone else. And this is how we walk together, is we borrow from each other's hope and faith. And the truth is, our hope is anchored in the risen Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so together, church, let's close and let's sing about our cornerstone. I hope today's message was an encouragement to you. And if you'd like a little more information about our church, just visit us on our website at lifepointplano.org.